Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Red Box podcast and the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. Well, the cough is off. As Natalie Bennett stands down as Green Party leader, Times chief political correspondent Michael Savage casts a critical eye over what she achieved. And we'll have another listen to that brain fade interview. Everyone in Westminster thinks they're an expert on the EU referendum, but Anthony Wells from YouGov is here to say we might be getting it all wrong on turnout. The first Times head of news faced Schlesinger on how a drive to improve universities could promote the mediocre at the expense of the eccentric. A drive to weed out and punish universities that deliver poor quality teaching is a step forward as higher education becomes bigger and more expensive. But let's not allow the system to become homogenised. Everyone remembers their scatty professor who dispensed with notes to launch into an off-topic spiel that left the hungover students enthralled and inspired. The government's university reforms must improve standards and choice and allow bad institutions to fail, but let that professor survive. So, Faye, this is quite a big overhaul of the way that uh, universities are funded, um, in particular the idea that if you end up on a bad course, you might even get some of your money back. What's the sort of driving force behind this? So it's a white paper that's um, been put out by Joe Johnson, who is the um, university's minister and also Boris Johnson's brother. It was started under the previous parliament, so it's been coming for a few years now. And what the the desire to do is to to shift slightly the focus of university achievement. So we have only really looked at research as a measure of how well our universities are doing and the answer on that measure is really well. I mean we are globally respected, I think that comes as a surprise to anybody, we're up there in the kind of research rankings. But on quality of teaching, and really it's about undergraduates but also postgrad, but mainly undergraduates the surveys suggest that we're not doing very well. Students say, there is a question mark over how they know, that they don't think their courses are good value for money and obviously with the introduction of tuition fees that sort of brought that into closer focus there hasn't really been any measure or reliable measure of how universities are doing on their lectures on their seminars on their tutorials and this reform this white paper is aiming to create some way of measuring them it's an Ofsted style kind of ranking but they're also going to punish universities that, that fall down in those rankings over time by saying you will not be able to raise your student fees in line with inflation in fact you might have to even cut them so it's quite a big kind of move over to looking at teaching as a real key measure of university success. And part of that's because universities make all their money from research and the actual teaching of undergraduates is a bit of an afterthought. But now students are getting £9,000 a year worth of debt every year and they they want some money 
you know they want to get something back for that they do i think that what we're moving towards is a slightly more sort of consumer-led yeah. um, system where people feel like they're much more aware of how much money is going in and therefore what they're getting out of it we've got more people at university than we've ever had before so there's just a high it's 1.8 million undergraduates in the system at any one time which is an enormous number yeah, yeah. and it has really shifted the focus now what what i'm saying is i i think i welcome it i think it's a really good thing but what we risk doing is what we don't want to do is create a university system it's just like our schools where we have a kind of a sense of a, we don't have a curriculum in universities but a sense of some kind of curriculum where everything becomes the same there is something magic about about higher education in this country which is that you do have crazy professors and you do have people who are very passionate about their subjects they've taken it way beyond the level of the undergraduates they're teaching they've got phds they've got books out they've you know they've got maybe 50 years of experience under their belt and we want to allow that freedom um, without kind of squashing it out and that's the concern i guess i'm raising and the concern is that that gets squeezed out to meet a target on contact time or Exactly. Turnaround of essays or whatever the exactly the, the so that everybody gets exactly is. the same treatment and you can envisage a point in future not yet but where every university says well to make sure that we get the ticks in every box we every tutor has to do exactly the same thing and I think that would be a mistake. What do you think, Michael? Good idea, bad idea? I'm in favour of a sort of nutty professor clause in this to uh, <laughs> safeguard our eccentric. Uh, academics. Everyone has one. I had a chap uh, at my university who, unless he was talking about revolutionary France, was socially awkward. We had a quote-unquote <laughs> party uh, held by him to introduce us all, in which uh, he just went around the room offering a plate of figs, uh, and that, that was the party. Um, <laughs> he was a brilliant professor. He uh, taught us everything we needed to know about the French Revolution and beyond. He was inspiring. We need to protect him. I just hope that part of being a character like that is you have unorthodox methods that actually produce good students so i hope one thing would lead to the other anthony if it comes down to how students rate them all the really eccentric ones students normally rate really really highly anyway i mean that's the point we do all love those ones if it comes down to student surveys and you know did you approve it how highly did you rate this professor's teaching those weird eccentric ones who actually teach you really well in a very odd way We'll probably actually get really good ratings. The as thing long will as it's be, I think, that the, yeah. Although the rating, I mean, we don't exactly know how they're going to to carry out these rankings and ratings in terms of there'll be some sort of there's something called the Office for Students, which will be a new another new quango. Another new quango, uh, brilliant. But I, I don't think there's any suggestion at the moment that individual lecturers will be rated. Your overall proper university experience will be rated on things like contact time and that sort of thing. I guess what might happen is that the universities take it upon themselves to say, oh, we need to make sure we're we're performing on all these kind of um, different measures. And Michael's right. The the, the the nutty professor, although they might be fun, it might you know the student with a hangover might think it's entertaining. They do actually need to produce good students at the end of it. And because I know there was some research, I think David Willits commissioned before he stepped down as university minister, but only came back fairly recently. Reported it in the Times about the I think the employability of students post mm. their degree and how much they how much debt they were in, and then and then actually to a lot of people now getting themselves in that amount of debt, that sort of stuff matters in a way yes. that. It probably didn't when you went to university and it didn't cost you anything. It, it matters, but I don't know whether really asking a student at the point that they finish their degree whether this course has been valued for money is the right time to ask them. Because <laughs> how do you know? You yeah, don't. Yeah. You've got nothing to compare it to, which is part of the, the yeah. problem this is trying to answer. But really, that will come in 10 years' time, 20 years' time, 30 years' time, and you can pay yourself to your peers who say didn't go to university and you can say, oh, look, I've made these um, sort of, you know, the earnings have improved or my 
the quality of life has improved. Well, it sounds like an idea which is still to be properly fleshed out, so we may well um, come back to it again. And at least we're not talking about students banning things, which is normally the only time we discuss students on the podcast. Um, and the nutty professor. And the nutty professor. Anthony, let's move on to the EU referendum. And uh, you want to tell us that we've all been getting it wrong on polls. Yes. Young people don't vote and they back remain. Old people do vote and they back leave. So if turnout's low, leave stands a better chance if only the dedicated old voters turning out. Or so the consensus goes, except, as usual, it's more complicated than that. Middle-class people and well-educated people are also more likely to vote, but they're more likely to back remain. So saying turnout is key is the popular thing to say, but it might also be wrong. Nancy, this is one of those things where everyone trying to pretend they know what's going to happen in the referendum says, oh, it's, tur- it's, all, it's all going to be about turnout, it's all going to be about turnout. And if it's a high turnout, that makes a Remain vote better, more likely a low turnout favours leave. And you're saying that actually even that might not be reliable. Yeah, it's always one of those easy things to say, you know, it's turnout matters. And we're used general elections, it really does matter because old people vote and middle class people vote and they both vote Tory. So you get general elections, there's a really strong turnout skew. But for the referendum, they're going at cross purposes to each other. So the demographics will cancel out. And then it just comes down to the enthusiasm of both sides. So the, kid, the, the, the point is that in a general election, all the people who are most likely to vote are more likely to be Tory. So they're all on one side. And the people who don't vote are more likely to vote Labour. Whereas on this, you're saying that it's a more evenly spread. Yeah. So actually, any turnout, in theory, should produce a similar sort of outcome. Yeah. You're left. The only difference is the enthusiasm of both sides. So whether all the people who want to leave and all the UKIPers are more enthusiastic than the other side. And there's some evidence of that. But I'm a pollster. And the one thing, the one question that when I see in a poll... I'm very doubtful about is questions about how likely you are to vote because the socially responsible thing to say is oh yes of course I'll vote when actually we know lots of people don't. So if we can't trust turnout if we can't go around saying turnout is key what can we say? Can we, can we, can we, can we be certain about anything in relation to polls? Because <laughs> we'll get onto the phone online thing in a minute but let's is there, yes. is there, are the polls at the moment telling us anything useful? While there's a range, you know, we'll talk about it in a sec. You know, while there's a range, there's no, for example, there's no poll showing a great big lead for leave. So within the field of what's likely to happen, it's between Remain being chunkily ahead and it being neck and neck. So at least we can be confident that leave's not going to run away with it. It's just how big is Remain's lead? Is it 10 points? Is it practically zero points? So, although about just over a year ago, we were very confident that of all the things that happened, it definitely wouldn't be the Tories who were going to no, lead we were, ahead. We, de- we were definite, and I'm sure I said several times, the Tories were definitely not going to get a majority. <laughs> the, the, Tories, the Tories being ahead was perfectly feasible. The bit we ra- wrongly ruled out was the Tories getting an overall majority. OK. Sorry so again. The, on the subject of making apologies, the difference between phone and online polls. So ICM have done an interesting experiment where they've polled on the same day the same question, both online and on the phone. And on the phone, Remain has a something like ten point lead and on I think it was eight and four. On line it's much closer. Now what so what's you gov just as online polls, so what's yeah. your what's your take on it? Who's right? If we knew who was right, there wouldn't be a difference because the ones who were wrong would have corrected their methods. So the very fact that there is this gap between the two different modes is evidence that no one's quite certain which one's right. 
we can float up lots of various reasons. It might be because of don't knows. Obviously, if online poll, you have to offer a don't know option for people to give it. You can't just accept it when they say it. It might be because people are more or less comfortable about giving a particular answer when there's an interviewer. It might be because we're just getting different sorts of people in our polls and that you know different people answer an online poll and a phone poll. But we won't know for sure until the 24th which one it is. Uh, this is a complete nightmare. Um, <laughs> for, for From you. a reporter's perspective. Yeah. Um, a perspective. Ab- absolutely. This seems that the one thing we absolutely know is there will be an EU referendum. Um, people will come out and vote. And if we can't even rely on those basics of who we usually think are going to vote and those who aren't, there's a, a terrifying possibility that this might actually come down to who runs the best campaign. And at the moment, we're already talking about Hitler with six weeks to go. So <laughs> the prospect of the whole thing being framed by who's got the best arguments, it sort of makes it exciting, actually. It's also quite terrifying because in that scenario, you can sort of be driven by events. Suddenly something that could happen could put everyone off the EU and the whole thing gets derailed by that for the Remain side. So it's really quite unstable. Well, more than that, because we saw in Scotland, a poll can derail uh, a campaign three weeks before the independence referendum in Scotland. Indeed. There was a poll that put independence ahead. And that changed the nature of the campaign. It changes how people react to it, the people who then spoke out who weren't going to. But I'd like to take slightly issue with what Anthony said, because to my mind it is about turnout, but it's maybe not about turnout based on demographics. That's what you're talking about, about typical kind of young, old class turnout. It's about who is most likely to be either so frightened that it could go, so the Remainers, so frightened it could go Brexit that they go, gosh, we better get out there and vote. Or, or it's about pure enthusiasm from the Brexiteers and kind of getting them to, because we know they, they want to push away from the status quo, so it's kind of easier to have, same with the Scottish referendum campaign, it's easier to have momentum and excitement about moving away from the status quo. But uh, we were talking earlier today about how there's been mixed messages that you read about number 10's certainty and sense of sort of security around the outcome of the vote. You get on the one hand the sense that they are in panic mode, that they are, we don't know which way it's going, we really could Brexit oh my goodness, you know, is Cameron going to preside over the breakup of the EU down the road? And then you get the other message that they think from private polling or, you know, internal um, information that they're eight to ten points ahead. Now, what I read into that, and I don't know if it's definitely true, is that probably they are are much more relaxed than they look, maybe not entirely relaxed, but want to keep this sense of it being neck and neck because that will keep the Remainers going. The minute you say, oh, we're winning, the government says we're winning, that will make the Remainers sit back. So it is still about turnout, but it's about turnout based on campaign, as as Michael says. The bit of turnout I am interested in is the actual get the vote out on the day, mm. because the Leave campaign, on the face of it, have got more troops. They've got all those UKIP activists, lots and lots of Conservative activists, to go and knock on the doors and get people out on referendum day itself. Who have the Remain side got? It's only how enthusiastic a Labour activist is going to be about you know, actually fighting that campaign. Yeah, you've also got a trade union movement who have a lot of troops who are very upset with the government about the way it's treated the trade union movement over reforms on when it can and can't strike. So there's a lot of bad blood there as well, mm. so you can't really rely on them. Even though we are seeing the government climbing down on a lot of those reforms. On bits and pieces, mm. but um, there's so much bad bad blood. Mm. And the, the idea of making it harder to strike and changing the thresholds you need in votes to have a strike has uh, ups- upset a lot of people. And they, they also have a problem where Jeremy Corbyn is so... A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. 
United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Reluctant to get involved in this campaign. It looks like a David Cameron campaign, which then makes trade unions more reluctant to sort of pile in rather than it looking like a big cross-party Yeah, effort. of course, and um, there's open questions about what Corbyn really thinks. Is he uh, secretly an outer and he's only decided to campaign for in, from huge pressure from within the, the Labour Party? So we can't discuss the EU referendum without doing our hugely popular red box sweepstake. I can't remember, Mike, have you already done this? I think I Can have, you remember yeah. what you... I should have checked. Do you remember what you said? Something around 53 Are you, are for you Remain. For Remain. Yeah. Are you are you still sticking by that? Is that still what you? Yeah, I'll stick by stick that. by that. Yeah. Very good. Faye, what would you predict? This is just a fool's game. We've just gone through all the reasons. I know, but we might as well just forget the polls and just go with you know which way the wind's blowing and a cow's lying down in the fields and and make a prediction. Pluck a number. Okay, of... my prediction is going to be based on the fact that we probably don't know what's going on. So I'm going to go wild. Right. Fifty-seven. Fifty-seven. You can have two decimal places if you want to. Point one one. Point one one. Very good. Which side though? Oh, for remain. For remain. And Anthony, really now this wild. this could be we could be about to get the answer that everyone has been waiting for. I still expect the polls to move towards Remain once people start worrying close to the day. So I'm going to say 55 Remain. 55, 55, no decimal points. 0.67. 0.67. Very good. Thank you very much for that. And um, as ever, listeners can send in your predictions. To, uh, you can email redbox at thetimes.co.uk or you can uh, post them via Twitter using the hashtag redboxsweepstake. Uh, now, though, let's move on to discuss the big, uh, the big shocking political news of the week. Michael, Natalie Bennett has, has resigned. That's right. And while Labour and the Tories are regularly criticised for obsessing about their party's leadership, as Green leader Natalie Bennett announces she is going to stand down, she offers the perfect example of what happens when the leadership in a party is seen as a necessary evil that no one covets and no one wants. She was originally elected with just 1,700 votes before being re-elected unopposed, although there were a few people who voted to reopen nominations. Bennett went on to suffer a comically disastrous election 
election campaign and cost the Greens a golden opportunity at a time when the Labour Party was weak and people were looking to, to protest. The truth is there should have been a quinoa on the carpet. Bennett should have quit or should have been removed. Here's to political ruthlessness. Now we'll, we'll come on to the interview in a moment but a little over a year ago, the turn of 2015, the polls were showing what was, you know, the green tide or the green, green surge. surge. They were green up surge. to, they were into double digits, 10, 11 percent mm. in some polls. Yeah. Um, and then we started seeing Natalie Bennett on the telly and it all went a bit wrong. That was the point where uh, the tide turned, really. So as part of the election defeat, Labour did a big internal report called 2015, What Happened?, And it sort of spelt out how disastrous it was for Labour. But the one thing it did point out was they were really lucky because of what happened with the Greens. And they produced an amazing graph, which I think we're going to put on the Red Box Twitter feed, which showed the Green vote increasing. But then at key moments when Natalie Bennett gave a television interview, it would recede as clear as day. Every time she went on telly, the party went backwards. As I say, it was a time that the Green Party really could have made big strides forward. There were people uncertain about Ed Miliband and Labour. And actually, what gets me is this. If I was a Green member, I'd be really furious. They might not get that chance again. And actually, with a Corbyn Labour Party now, that is going to eat up Green votes. So that chance may well have gone. And actually, there's also a question about political responsibility. If you're that bad at a job, (laughs) it's your responsibility to stand aside. And uh, she has now, but it should have been fairly obvious that she wasn't up to it. And if there had been challenges to her before, in 2014 or 2012, they would have clearly, surely have had a better candidate. And uh, on the graph that you're talking about, because it is really striking, it nosedives almost immediately after a disastrous interview she did with Andrew Neil on the Sunday Politics, where she said it was Green Party policy that it wasn't a criminal offence to join ISIS. Never a good idea, I would say, <laughs> in, uh, certainly in British politics at the moment. Um, that was followed up by a disastrous LBC uh, interview. And even after that, they could have got rid of her and had someone like Caroline Lucas, much more Or just sidelined and just a- said... Exactly. You know, you go and stuff some envelopes and, and we'll get Caroline Lucas is much better at this stuff. She's yeah, got- and they at that point they still had the seven-way debate, huge televised debate just before the election. They could have got some traction. They got none. She was hopeless. The Greens <laughs> underachieved. Two things here. One is underestimating the importance of PR and slick PR. And I think there'll be listeners to this who kind of despise me for saying this because it's a really unpopular view that that parties should be slick and should be smooth and should have a grid and have an enormous press team and things. There's something romantic about the idea of going back to the roots. And it's like when Corbyn came in and he said, I'm going to do it all differently. I'm going to have PMQs that's much less um, uh, aggressive. I'm going to step back and not be as much of a leader because I'm going to let my party speak. There's a sense that it's a virtue to be natural What we see time and time again is I'm afraid it just doesn't work. There's a reason why governments and opposition and small parties have press offices and campaigns because, frankly, while in your living room saying or over a kitchen table or with a constituent saying, actually, you know what, joining ISIS shouldn't be a problem. You should be able to express your your free sort of view. Saying it in public is a very different thing <laughs> because you don't have the nuance. People only read, the very, we're very busy people, we, don't, we only read headlines. And while the people you're talking to might listen to you, everyone else will be um, isolated by it. The second side of it is this ideological link and it sort of ties in. 
with the idea of, of parties that are more on the left and being soft around leadership. So again, I would, I would tie together Corbyn and, and Natalie Bennett on that. This notion that you you don't have to be a powerful leader, you can be much more democratic in the way you do things. But again, I just resort to the fact that when we look at it, it doesn't work. I'd love it if it did, because it would be a kind of new politics. And, and and it's a fantastic idea to explore, but time to time it doesn't work. And that's what I think we saw with Bennett. And Anthony, this, this matters in the context of the general election, because actually the Greens had their eyes on quite a few seats in the run-up to the election. And they, they ended up with, they've still just got Caroline Lucas and Brighton. Yes, they they were focusing on other seats in, in Norwich and Oxford and Bristol. Um, um, and they got nowhere. Um, um, I mean, last Parliament... It confused me for a long time why the Greens weren't doing better. Because you'd have thought you've got a government in lots of cuts, you've got lots of people who are very anti-austerity, and Ed Miliband's Labour Party couldn't be completely anti-austerity. It wanted to rebuild its economic credentials. So the Greens had that huge potential, and they never capitalised on it at all, really. And when it got to the campaign and Natalie Bennett started being interviewed, we saw why. Yeah, it was a, a But even lack- on green issues, I mean... Green issues, if you sort of go back 10, 15, 20 years, the Green Party had always campaigned on green issues and suddenly all the other parties start. Do you remember when the, the Tories turned their blue emblem green? Yeah. And they all rode in and suddenly the Green Party seemed much less relevant because they managed to get their issue talked about in every mainstream party. What's happened now um, under, the to- under the coalition and the Tory government is a, they've rode back on some of those So there's an green opportunity issues. there. There's an opportunity yeah, yeah, yeah. to say, hey, remember, we should be pushing these things and they haven't managed to do that either. So I, th- I think now is probably a good time because if nothing else, Natalie Bennett will be remembered for, I think, Michael, you've described it as one of the all-time worst political interviews ever. Well, I'd be interested in anyone, if anyone can think of a worse one. But actually, when a presenter asks you if you're all right to carry on, <laughs> it's not a good sign that it's gone well. So let's let's just start listening to it and we can dip in and out of it. And if anybody wants to provide some sort of, you know, director's commentary over the top but let's uh, let's listen to this now so this is this is Natalie Benefit, Bennett in an interview with LBC uh, a little over a year ago he spilled out in a manifesto so you don't know no, well, no you don't right so we don't know how much those homes are going to cost but the, the way it's going to be funded is mortgage relief from private landlords how much is that worth right well what what, what we're looking at in terms in terms of the, the figures yeah. here yeah. Um, yeah, what we, we need to do is actually uh, we're looking at a total spend <laughs> of 2.7 billion. 500,000 homes, 2.7. What are they made of? Plywood. It's a um, great life. Basically, what we're talking about is 500,000 new homes, and basically each one pound spent on this brings back two pounds forty. No, but what is the total cost of 500,000 homes? She has to buy the land um, as well to build the house. It's a cost of 60,000 per home. 60,000 per home. 60,000 per home. Mm-hmm. So because 60, what we're talking about is, is the opportunity but for... But that, that can't include the land. Well, what we're talking about is what we want to see is, is the possibility of um, of homes being built. That, that's not much more than a large conservatory, <laughs> 60,000 pounds. So, so where's the land? How are you going to pay for the land? Right, well, what, what we're looking at doing <laughs> is, is, <laughs> is basically... Okay, no facts. <coughs> oh, that's the first call. There is the famous <laughs> Sorry, yes, no, I, as, you, as you can probably hear, I, I've got a, a huge cold. I'm terribly sorry to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so what we need to do is, is basically social rental sincere homes. Sincere figure. Right. Still don't see how you're going to get this sum at 60. 
you don't actually know how much this is going to cost, do you? Uh, yeah, we have we have a fully costed program which we'll be releasing, into, which we will release. Shouldn't you be aware of what that a cost will be now? Is now desperately uh, trying to right. Yeah, so what we're talking about is six billion a year. So it's the current budget is one point five billion a year. Six billion. Yeah. So that that will be attained by taking mortgage relief from private landlords. That's six billion pounds worth, is it? And we're also looking at in investing. <laughs> We've got the fully costed figures here. You've said that on a couple of occasions. How much does mortgage relief from private landlords bring in then? <coughs> she doesn't know. Um, basically, we're talking about an overall saving of £4.5 billion. Pounds. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or is that a And this is other, other so savings as well from yeah. yeah. private landlords as well. We're looking at housing benefit reforms. And what we also want to do is bring in caps this is on so, This is the point uh, where Nick Flowey yeah. now realises he's dealing with a sort of a child or somebody who's just not up to it. He completely turns. Normally, he's very hard. She did have a cold. And it can seem very unfair that we're having a go at, at, at Natalie Bennett, but this is sort of my point. Actually, ruthlessness is, is something you sort of need. This was a golden opportunity, and here you have a party leader unable to sustain a five-minute conversation about her own policies. And, as I say, I'd be furious if I was in the Green Party. People in the Greens have, have often made the argument, yeah, but she was brilliant about sort of uh, internal democracy and increasing membership. I remember when people said about Gordon Brown... If only he could meet every voter individually and they'd all know what a great guy he is. Actually, political leadership is convincing people that you're convincing and good and deserve their vote. And actually, if you can't do that, you're not a leader. And I, I know that, that, that David Cameron or Ed Miliband or Nick Clegg would say there are plenty of times when they've done interviews dosed up to the eyeballs on... You know, cold and flu drugs or whatever. Yes, to be quite clear, sort of entirely legal lemsits. That's the point I was trying to make. Um, because you have to, and that's the job. And you, you know, you can feel terrible. And there were times when Cameron looks absolutely terrible because he's running the country, doesn't get a lot of sleep. But that's that's part of the job. Um, and particularly because the Green Party don't get a lot of hits on uh, mainstream media like that. And so to to, <laughs> to balls it up quite so spectacularly is, uh, is is an achievement. So, Anthony, do you think there's any way back for the Greeks, whoever the next leader might be? No. I won't embarrass you by asking you to name the six front runners for the job. Shahir Ali, Amelia Womack, Caroline Lucas, three. Three, <laughs> three. That's very good. That's how I let you off. Is there a way back? Is the, is the moment for the green ties, is that past? With Corbyn, uh, it shot off their main route, which was an anti-austerity party. Um, um, without that opportunity, it's going to be very tricky. So there's not going to be an opportunity like the last election again for a while. Michael, is, is Jeremy Corbyn the leader that the Green Party should have had? Well, I think, as Anthony says, he's going to win a lot of those those votes now. I think the question for the Green Party is, as Anthony says, finding some political space. There's also a responsibility here for someone like Caroline Lucas who is clearly their best performer. There's different ways you get a party leadership, and one of them is you do your party a favour. And I think probably a lot of people would say she's got to do that now. It's clearly their best performer to try and rescue something. Well, I'm sure that we'll cover the Green Party leadership in depth in The Times and on, uh, and on Redbox over David the coming... David Attenborough would be quite good, wouldn't he? David Attenborough? Mm. He might be, yeah. Yeah, fantasy green leaders would mm. be a, a good red... <laughs> That's a good. That's uh, quite a niche sweepstake, that one, isn't it? <laughs>
if this is all we've got isn't niche enough already um, I'm afraid that's got uh, all we've got time for uh, this week you can read more about everything we've been discussing at thetimes.co.uk forward slash red box where you can also sign up for my morning political briefing you can follow us on twitter at times red box and find us on facebook subscribe to the podcast via itunes or on your android device and send your uh, sweepstake predictions to redbox at the time.co.uk or use the hashtag redbox sweepstake on twitter but for now from faye michael anthony and me it's goodbye thank you for downloading to discover more head to thetimes.co.uk 